Father, we do ask now that as we come to your word once again, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind to understand, hearts to yield. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fulfill your ministry in a wonderful and a glorious way as you reveal to us the glory of Christ, that you would glorify his name in us, that you would encourage and strengthen our hearts, that you would nourish and feed us on, the, on your word, and that we would leave here with the wonder and the majesty and the hope that we have in Christ, fresh in our hearts and in our minds. We commit this time to you and seek and ask your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we're going to come this morning, believe it or not, to the final chapter of Matthew. After our long trek through this gospel, we open up to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. However, as we come into Matthew chapter 28, we're coming into not only the end of his gospel, but we're coming into his accounting of one of the most significant and essential events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, namely his resurrection from the dead. And for that reason, we are this morning actually not going to dig into this text specifically, we'll save that for next week, but We're going to take a moment to consider, a moment being this Sunday morning, the glories of the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection to the gospel message and to the work of Christ and all that God has intended to accomplish through that work. Now, to begin, I want to take us back to where we were last week, namely the reality of death, the reality of death which is the necessary contrast and corollary to an understanding of the resurrection. There are, according to the statistic that I saw, nearly 7.5 billion people on the face of the planet Earth today. Uh, That was what I at least could find through an internet search, government statistics. 7.5 billion people on the face of the planet. And of those 7.5 billion people... There is, as you well know, a 100% certainty that every one of them is going to die. That each one of them will live out a number of days that have been appointed for them, including us who are in this room. And at the end of those days, they will enter into an eternity of heaven and the joys of heaven or of eternal punishment. To wrap our mind a little bit around the reality of this... Uh, There is another statistic that might bring this home, and it's this. Three people, if we took out the number of deaths and broke it down into uh, a day and seconds and minutes, three people will die every second, every second. Somewhere in the world, three people will die. 180 people will die every minute, and nearly 11,000 people will die every hour. And at the end of every day, 250,000 people will have left this world and entered into the next. And as we said, we'll go either to eternal joy in the presence of God or out of the presence of God forever. So the reality of death is something that is 
before all of us, and it's something we well understand. Some of us understand it at different degrees personally because we've lost those that we've loved. We all understand it in terms of the graveyards that we pass and the very reality that we know we won't live forever. But death is a reality. It's a part of this creation. It's something that we can't escape. And it's a reality, as we've noted, because sin is a reality and death is the consequence of sin. Romans 5.12 puts it in a concise statement in this way, Paul does. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So because sin is a reality, death is a reality, because sin is the natural condition that all men and people are born into, death is a consequence of that, and therefore all will die, at least physically. And if we look at death merely in terms of its certainty and merely in terms of its uh, 100% certainty, it's, it's somewhat of a grim reality. It produces or it can produce a kind of hopelessness because it takes out of this world any real ultimate meaning or purpose in and of itself. And so we're, we're thrust into the, the very proclamation of Solomon and Ecclesiastes that vanity and vanity, all is vanity. There's a certain futility to this world if we only see this existence in itself and as an end in itself. That's essentially his point. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, The creation was subject to futility. Not willingly, that is not of its own accord. It was subjected because of the sin of man. And the idea there is is that Because of the reality of sin, because of the ultimate end of a world that is corrupted by sin, there is a certain futility to everything that's accomplished or done here when seen in itself. Because ultimately it will be destroyed. So Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3. Just listen and I'll read it. It, He says this, and and he's really referring to here those who are mocking the idea that all things are going to be destroyed. Those who say, yeah, everything's just going to continue on as it always has. To them, he says, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so the point is, is that the world is going to be destroyed and therefore there's really nothing here ultimately to put our hope in or, or to find our ultimate meaning in. And even worse than all of that is the fact that because death is a result of sin and because God created us to live uh, forever, the writer of Hebrews also adds on this picture, this grim picture in and of itself, that it's appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. So it's not only that there would be a certain vanity to this world in and of itself, but also there would be the end of eternal judgment For those who never looked beyond this world upward to God's grace. And in fact, world religion and every religion of the world is really an attempt of man to somehow alleviate this reality through some idea and explanation of a world beyond in which, in a general case, 
according to world religions, will be better based on the fulfilling of certain conditions here, generally related to some kind of morality that we can accomplish, that will make our life better in the world to come. And so there's a variety of ways in which man has sought to alleviate this reality and explain and somehow prepare for this reality of death. But they do so without anything real or objective to hope in. It's the ideas of man. It's nothing that really satisfies even in the heart of the one who begins to think seriously about these things. It never really satisfies or gives an answer, supplies an answer for the deep condition of sin that we know to be in our hearts. In other words, they all leave you empty. They leave you with with no real answer. And this, beloved, is the glory of the gospel. This is the glory of the message of Christ. This is the glory of God's perfect revelation of His redemption in Christ. That what man is subject to and cannot get out of, namely the reality of death and sin, God has provided for in His Son. That's the message of the gospel. What is impossible for man is not impossible for God. In fact, he has made it possible by accomplishing all that was necessary for him to save men. Enter in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, uniting himself to humanity, truly God, truly man, so that he could do what is astounding, what no imagination of man could ever conceive of in its fullness, He united himself to the very thing he created, namely humanity, so that he could die, right? So that he could die. That is the wonder of wonders. That God not only would unite himself for man, not simply to, by example, lift us up to some higher spiritual state of existence, but so that he could experience his own determined and necessary consequence for sin, namely death as a man. That's what we've been looking at for the last several weeks and what Matthew has recorded for us at the gospel, that God made satisfaction for his own wrath against sin through the son, death of the Son of God united to flesh. It was a death that was not merely a death of a man, but it was a death of a God-man. It was a death of a substitute sacrifice that alone satisfied the righteousness of God. That big word that we've looked at very, very briefly before, propitiation, that you'll run across in Scripture. It mainly means this, that, that God has satisfied all that His righteousness requires through the death of Christ, in that he has averted his wrath because he has placed it on Christ and he has removed it from the sinner, the believing sinner, who deserves it. And he has, in Christ, provided everything that is necessary for sinners to be forgiven and live in his presence forever. And so again, that is the glory then of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and Matthew and the gospel writers have gone through great pains, who've gone through great effort to make clear to us that 
the death that Christ died was, in fact, a real death. I didn't do the math, but we looked at probably 12 verses that were committed to it in the end of Matthew alone that have no other purpose than really to bear witness to the fact that Christ died, that he was in the tomb, that that is witnessed to by both friends and by both foes, that it was an undeniable fact that the body that was on the cross had died. And the witness of Scripture is that it was a death that was an atoning death, a death for the atonement of sin. Now, all of the Old Testament anticipated this great event. All of the Old Testament scriptures, beginning in Genesis and all throughout, was a witness or an anticipation, if you will, to this great work that God was going to accomplish. This great answer to the reality of man's sin, which began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The promise that one would come born of a woman who would crush Satan on his head, who would reverse his work, who would undo his malicious work, and in fact redeem a people to himself. Now, all of Old Testament Scripture then looked forward to this great reality. However, the understanding of what that entailed was not as clear in the Old Testament. And we're going to look next week in more detail as an introduction to Matthew 28, of exactly how the saints in the Old Testament understood the resurrection. What should they have expected at the coming of Christ and his death and his resurrection? Certainly, it was not something that God was silent on. If you'll remember Christ speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he told them that they were slow to believe in all that God had revealed in the law and the prophets and in Moses and in the Psalms. Essentially, all of the Old Testament. It was shrouded with mystery in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it is a truth that bursts forth in glorious light, with majesty and with wonder and with hope and with life that had never been known to the saints of the Old Testament, even the most godly of them. Because it was dependent on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was dependent on the completion of his work. And that is why the disciples were slow to understand it. Although they should have clearly understood more than they did. Jesus chided them more than once. In John 13, 7. You remember when he was washing the feet of the disciples. He said to Peter who resisted this work of Christ, this action of Christ anyway. And he says, what I do now, you do not understand, but you will understand hereafter. In other words, after he's died, after he's risen, after he's ascended back to the Father, after he's sent the Holy Spirit. In chapter 16 of John, he said to them, I have more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. There were simply things that before Christ had died and risen, that they would have had no context really to understand in its fullness. That had to come at a later point. After he had died, after he'd completed the atonement, after he had risen from the dead, after he had sent the Holy Spirit. Paul captures this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let me read it to you. Verses 8 to 10 is what I'll read. He says, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, 
who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And here's the main point I want to bring out. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There are glories about heaven, terrors about hell, but here the emphasis on the glory of eternal life with God, the the glory of spiritual life forever, the glory of forgiveness of sin, the resurrection, and all that God has prepared for those who trust in His Son, all come to glorious light through the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an understanding of eternal matters which, frankly, even the most godly Old Testament saint did not possess in the Old Testament before the coming of Christ. And Paul says in verse 11 that it is this message of the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And so this was essentially the death and the resurrection of Christ, of course, those two things inseparable, was the central proclamation of the early church, that Jesus Christ had been risen from the dead. It was the central proclamation of Peter in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, that he who was crucified by godless men was in fact the Messiah of God, the one anticipated in the Old Testament, and he was in fact the one whom God raised from the dead in glory and in power. It was a central message then of the New Testament and of the spread of the gospel and of the church. Let me just give you one example. Paul says this at the end of his ministry before, or before Agrippa at the end of the book of Acts. He says this. He says, having obtained help from God, he says, I stand this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that Christ was to suffer... And that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. He was, in fact, proclaiming the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, on this point, before we move on to the main part of this message, faith, then, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to salvation. It's not a side doctrine. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that is, of course, denied. We'll even address some of that in our text of Matthew. It's denied even by those who call themselves Christians, liberal Christians, who have invented their own gospel and their own understanding of Christ and who, in fact, are not Christians at all, who deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you in your own heart, if there's any here who doubt that, who doubt the real bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that grave was empty because of the power of God who raised the lifeless body of Christ to life again in a body never to die again, then you are not a Christian. It's absolutely essential and absolutely the foundation of the hope of every believer that Christ 
rose from the dead. And so Paul says this in Romans. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that this was essentially the gospel message that he delivered, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture and that he was seen by many. He accounts for that in 1 Corinthians 15. So this is absolutely essential to the gospel message that Christ was raised from the dead. Let me give you one And then we'll move into the significance then of Christ's resurrection. Why is it so significant? One author has said this, and I think he captures this well, in terms of the foundation of the resurrection to all of the New Testament teaching of Christ. He says this, In addition to these detailed narratives in the four Gospels, the book of Acts is a story of the apostles' proclamation of the resurrection of Christ and of continued prayer to Christ and trust in him as the one who is alive and reigning in heaven. The epistles depend entirely on the assumption that Jesus is a living, reigning Savior who is now the exalted head of the church, who is to be trusted, worshipped, and adored, and who will someday return in power and great glory to reign as king over the earth. The book of Revelation repeatedly showed the risen Christ reigning in heaven and predicts his return to conquer his enemies and right and, and return in glory. Thus, the entire New Testament bears witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection is absolutely central to our hope. It's central to everything that we believe. As we've mentioned before, Paul's statement, every promise is yes and amen in Christ, the one who has died and risen for sinners. So what I want to do this morning as an introduction to us getting into the text of Matthew next week is simply take an overview and look at the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in terms of what it reveals about Christ and in terms of what it means for our own hope and our own future. So I'm going to give you, I think there's 13 here. You can, some, some listed as many as 20 or more different uh, Things or ways that the significance of the resurrection is important for us. But I'm going to narrow it down to 13. We'll go through these rather quickly. We won't spend a lot of time on them. But I want collectively to give you an idea of the centrality of the resurrection for the encouragement of our faith and for the encouragement of our hope in Christ. The first one is this. This is the first one. The resurrection proved Jesus Christ was once and for all the Son of God whose sacrifice God accepted. Romans chapter 1 says this. Paul, speaking of the gospel that he proclaimed or was proclaiming, he said this, It was a gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, and was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake." He says here that he was declared the Son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead was God's 
ultimate spotlight on the nature of the person of Jesus Christ. That this was not merely a man, that this was the eternal Son of God who offered himself up and who was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. Jesus himself, when in a discussion with the Jewish leaders, put his resurrection as the ultimate witness to his right and authority as the Son to act the way that he did while on earth. They said the Jews did. What sign do you show us for your authority, for, or as your authority for doing these things? Jesus said in John 2, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews says it took 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. What was going to declare ultimately the authority out of which Jesus acted, a divine authority that was present throughout his ministry, ultimately it was that he would be raised from the dead. Now it's possible, and some do take this in Romans 4, not as a declaration of his divine nature, the Son, but rather they take that word that's declared and they And they translate it in this way that he was appointed as the son. In other words, they'd say he was appointed as the son of God with power in his new role as the exalted Lord. As the exalted Lord. And it is arguable that it could be taken that way. But the best way, I think, to understand it is how the NASB, the New American Standard, has translated it. In other words, that it is a declaration that he is the son of God. And while that's important in terms of how we understand this specific passage, both of them are true. He who was declared the Son of God with power is the Son who is preached as head of the church, as Lord of heaven and earth, as Lord of the universe, under whose feet the Father is subjecting all of his enemies. He is the Lord who rules his church through the Spirit whom he sent, and he is the Lord who is returning. And all of this is grounded and wrapped up in the fact that he was the one who not only died, but who was raised from the dead. Born a descendant of David, crucified as a substitute on the cross, raised in glorious proclamation that he and he alone is the Son of God in whom is salvation. So the first thing the resurrection does is it declares Christ as the Son of God. The secondly is this. It confirms God's acceptance of His sin-bearing sacrifice. If you're flipping along with me, this also in Romans. Romans 4.25, he says this. uh, Actually beginning in verse 23. Now, not only for His sake only was it written that it was credited to Him. In other words, Abraham, his faith for believing in God's promises. It says, but for our sake, verse 24, also to whom it will be credited is those who believe in him, the father who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead. He, Christ, who was delivered over because of our transgressions, atonement for sin. His death was an atoning death and was raised because of our justification. His resurrection declaring forever That God accepted his sacrifice. That those who place their faith in Christ have their sins completely atoned for. That God's righteousness has been completely satisfied. That it can be the possession of everyone who believes in his son. And that is called justification. Declared 
righteous by God based on the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ affirmed the Father's acceptance of His sacrifice. There is a third way. It declared Him to be the Son of God. It confirmed God's acceptance of His sin-bearing sacrifice. Third, the resurrection of Jesus Christ purchased for us, if you know Him, our regeneration, our spiritual life. And flowing out of that, even our faith, the very faith by which we have, who know him, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of 1 Peter. He says this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to attain an inheritance which is imperishable, undeviled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very means by which God, through the Spirit, regenerates His own and out of which they receive the faith that trust in Christ and His sacrifice and by which they are saved. By which they are saved. The resurrection of Jesus Christ then is essential to God applying His work by the ministry of the Spirit in granting His people life. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be born again. That is what Jesus declared to Nicodemus that unless a man be born Again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that grace of the new birth of regeneration was purchased by Christ, not only by his death, but here by his resurrection. By his resurrection. It is through the resurrection that Jesus defeated death. It is through the resurrection that he rose with the ultimate Filling of spiritual life, a life that he shares with his people by the Spirit. You remember Jesus' words in John 11? Well, in John 14, he, said, he told the disciples this, picking up on the same idea here. Because I live, you will live also. Because I live, you will live also. Speaking there and anticipating his resurrection. In other words, he's saying, because I will be raised from the dead, because I will not remain in the grave, because I am life and in me is life that I will give to my people, you then will live, and as he says in John 11, and never die. Never die. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Because of his resurrection, Jesus is able to give to us and has purchased for us the grace of spiritual life, a life that we share with him, a life that is his, and a life that was declared in his resurrection. In his resurrection from the dead. And it is through that, in that resurrection, in the, to the person of Christ, that the Holy Spirit unites us and that he gives us and allows us to share and participate in the life of Christ. Number four, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
you and I have a high priest and intercessor before the Father. Let me read two passages to you. Hebrews chapter 7. I know we're going quick, and I'm going to speed up a little bit to finish in time. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. He says this. He, after in verse 23, making a comparison with priests who fulfilled their ministry but weren't able to continue it because they died. It says in verse 24, But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, we have no intercessor with the Father. We have no permanent high priest. We have no eternal mediator. The idea here is that because Christ rose from the dead, because he returned to the right hand of the Father, our righteousness is continually in heaven in Christ. And that our acceptance to God, before God, our access to God is forever secured through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He who was both the sacrifice and our high priest. Paul says it in another way in Romans 8. And in some ways, highlighting the tenderness of this reality, the love of God. He says this. He says in chapter 8, verse 33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather... Who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Let me put it in this way. You can pray to God and you can have confidence that when you pray to God, he will hear you because Christ rose from the dead. Because Christ is your intercessor. That is the reason that when you bow your head and you pray, Our Father, as we sung about this morning... When you cry out to God in faith, the reason that he hears is not because he's under any obligation to do so. The reason that he hears the confession of a sinner, the reason that he hears the cries of his children, is not because God is under some divine obligation because we're made in his image, which would be the way a spiritualist kind of would approach that. We have the ear of God and we have access to God because... Christ, who died, was raised and is at his right hand of the Father. And our life is hidden with God in Christ. Our life is hidden in Christ. And it is then a life, it is an access to God through the intercession of Christ that we can never lose. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword... He goes on, he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And beloved, that is because he is everything that scripture declares him to be that is proven in the resurrection because he is a resurrected savior. Whenever you go to God, you go, if you are a Christian, 
clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Every confidence that you have that your sins are forever atoned for, that you are completely justified in Christ before God, every hope that He hears you as a loving Father who even sent the Son is because Christ rose from the dead. A sixth promise. It enables His present intercession. A sixth promise is this. It earned or He earned the promise of the Holy Spirit. The great reality of the new covenant or one of the great realities of the new covenant is this. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, God has given as a gift to His church a spiritual reality and a spiritual power in Christ that was unknown to any previously. He sent the Holy Spirit. That is, in many ways, the very essence of Christ's gift to His church is the Spirit who gives us life, who gives us faith, who unites us to Christ through whom every blessing of salvation comes, who secures us, who keeps us, who indwells us, who enables us to fulfill everything that God has given us to do here on earth. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is a gift that was purchased for us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in John chapter 7. He says this, Jesus did. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He was not yet glorified. We experience by the Spirit and His ministry of uniting us to Christ, indwelling us and filling us as we obey Him, sealing us and keeping us is a great gift of the new covenant. Listen to what Acts 2.33 says. This is part of Peter's first sermon. He says, speaking of Christ, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father, listen, the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. He could not receive the promise of the Holy Spirit and therefore every gift that He gives through the Spirit in the new covenant if He had not come and died and been risen from the dead. It is a gift as the mediator, as the God-man that He received from the Father, as in Peter's words, that he has poured out on you this day. This is glorious. You have the Holy Spirit if you know Christ. You are intimately acquainted with Him and fellowship with Him through the ministry of the Holy Spirit because Christ was raised from the dead. Number seven says this, the resurrection demonstrates the power that is at work towards God's people. One author had said, commenting on this verse, that more than creation, more than all of the created universe and all of the majesty of the universe, which Paul says does reveal his divine attributes, his eternal power in Romans chapter 1, but more than that, more than even all of the heavens that declare the glory of God, 
more than a universe that we can't even begin to fathom in its greatness and immensity and power, more than all of those things, God has demonstrated his power in this way, that he defeated death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And this is the greatness of his power in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words... The greatness of God's power towards his people and towards his church is ultimately demonstrated and comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Greater than creating worlds unknown and universes and galaxies beyond number is the fact that death, the consequence of sin, was defeated and rebellion against God through that, was able to be forgiven and he could bring sinners into his presence. It is the same power of the resurrection that works in his people. It is the same power demonstrated in the resurrection that gives Christ rule and dominion over every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. It is that power that will subject everything under his feet as Lord of the universe. Every nation, every king, every person submits ultimately in will to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ because of, his, of the power that was demonstrated in his resurrection. In this case, it was the power of the Father who raised him from the dead. It's this power at work in you, beloved, the power of the resurrection, not only that gave you life, not only that sustains your faith, not only that gives you hope, but it is this power in you that enables you to defeat sin in your life. Paul says that in Romans 8. This is the evidence of spiritual life that you as a Christian have the ability, you have the power, as it were, through the Spirit, which is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your union with Him to defeat sin. Listen, Romans eight eleven. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the Spirit who was the very means of that demonstration of the power of God... If that spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, listen, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You have the very power of God that raised Christ from the dead in you. And he says in verse 13 or verse 12 so then brethren we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh if you're living according to the flesh you must die if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh you will live so the power of of christ's resurrection demonstrated in christ's resurrection 
A power, a resurrection that was accomplished by the Father and by the Spirit and by the Son, here focusing on the work of the Spirit, is that same Spirit who gives the same power to believers, in this case, to defeat sin. If you are not a believer and you do not have the Spirit of God, you are enslaved to sin and can do nothing about it. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know His resurrection power and you not only have the ability, but you are putting to death sin in your heart and in your life. And you have the ability to do that. You have the ability to do that because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. You have the power by Christ to endure suffering and hardship for the sake of the gospel. Paul said this in Romans 3. Let me just read it. He says, or actually in verse 9, he says I'm, that he, he hopes that he could be found in him not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, that which is through faith in Christ, righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And essentially what he's saying is that the reason that he's able to fulfill his ministry, the reason that he's able to endure what he does is because the very power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is in him that enables him to endure these sufferings and have an undying hope that he will in the last day receive all that is promised him in the gospel. That he may attain to that goal for which he has been laid a hold of. Namely, the goal of being with Christ, conformed to his image forever. You and I, inasmuch as God may call us to this in this life, have the power to live faithfully and do even what Stephen did this morning and will do next week in Acts chapter 7. Boldly declare and receive whatever suffering might come from our proclamation of the gospel because of the power of God in us. So it's his power, not our own. And it's the same power, he says at the end of the chapter, to transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Well, I want to get to the last one, so I'm going to just list off a couple of them and then get to this last point. He, he earned the promise of the Holy Spirit through the resurrection. He demonstrates the power that is at work in us as God's people through the Spirit. He makes certain, this is number eight, his return for the church. His return for the church. Jesus told his disciples on the night before he was to be given over, I go and prepare, prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, he says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to get you so that you may be where I am. So that you may be where I am. That same promise is given to us in 1 Thessalonians. That Christ will return for his church. He will return for his church. Number nine. The resurrection then confirms also the establishment of his kingdom. The establishment of his kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, 31. That he will return as king and sit on his glorious throne. He will sit on his glorious throne and rule over a kingdom that he has purchased as king and as Lord. 
It makes certain his return for the church and his establishment of the kingdom. His establishment of the kingdom. He told his disciples, I won't eat this again with you until I eat it again with you in my Father's kingdom. Number 10, it furnishes proof of his future judgment of the ungodly. It furnishes proof of his future judgment of the ungodly. Acts 17.31, Paul declares that God will judge the world through a man. He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has proved to be this judge by raising him from the dead and therefore leaving all without excuse. The resurrection declares that Christ will return and that he will judge the world in righteousness. He says, He's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by what? By raising him from the dead. By raising him from the dead. Number 11, it assures us as his people of his future judgment of Satan. It shows, assures us of his future, final, complete eradication of Satan from this earth, forever to be held in judgment. In fact, hell was created for Satan, and that's where he will be. He says this, that in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That is going to happen. It's recorded for us at the end of Scripture in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, where Satan is bound in the abyss for a thousand years and then ultimately cast into the lake of fire. His resurrection then confirms his future judgment of the ungodly, assures of the judgment of Satan, and guarantees our physical resurrection. And here I'm going to go quickly. We'll look at some of these things more as we go along, but let me, let me mention them to you here. Number 12, it guarantees our resurrection. It guarantees our resurrection. The reason that a Christian can hear those statistics about death and be Struck, hopefully we are, with the reality of the consequences of sin. But at the same time, the reason that we look at those, or look at the reality of death and do not cringe or lose hope, because we have the promise of being raised again with Christ. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 again. He says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruit, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Those who are Christ at his coming. In other words, the, the basic idea is this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead bodily in a real physical body, the same body that he was laid in the tomb, now raised yet made glorious forever, was a prototype, was the first instance, was the first example, was the first reality of the resurrection that God has promised to all who are in Christ, namely that they will be raised from the dead. We read earlier how death spread to all men through Adam. That's what he said, in Adam all die. So in the second Adam, Christ, all will be made alive. All who trust him. That there will be then a physical resurrection of the dead for all who are in Christ to live with him forever. To live with him forever. 
His resurrection then was physical. Again, we'll go over this more next week. Let me just remind you. That was absolutely essential for the writers to make clear. As much as they labored to make clear he actually died, they labored to make clear that he actually rose in a real physical body. Thomas and John 20 touched a physical body. The women grabbed his feet. Luke, the writer of Acts, says that in Acts 1-3, that he was with them for 40 days with many convincing proofs. What were the proofs of? What would he have to prove? But in fact, that he had raised from the dead physically and bodily. He ate food with the disciples and said that he would again in his kingdom. That means that Christ is only physically in one place at a time, and now he is at the right hand of the Father as the God-man. He is the one whom Stephen saw, that we'll read next week, looked up into heaven and he was standing at the right hand of the Father. He saw him as he was being stoned to death. As a footnote to this is the, the flesh of Christ, the man, the humanity of Christ, the eternal Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, is not, this is a big word I know, is not ubiquitous. What that means then is that when we take the Lord's Supper, his Flesh is not somehow magically dispersed among all of the churches of the earth and we're actually eating the body and the blood of Christ, which is what Lutheranism and others would want to teach. He is physically in one place as the man, Jesus Christ. He is physically with the Father and he will return for his people. And as a side note here, and again, we'll, we'll look at this more, he didn't pass through walls, he didn't float around to some ghost That's a common Christian misconception. He didn't do that. The text never says that. In John 20, 26, it merely says the doors were shut. Again, we'll look at that later. His resurrection then is the first fruits. It's the prototype of ours. His resurrection, however, has elements to it that are different than ours. Different than ours. One, though he rose bodily, he bears the marks of his crucifixion doesn't say he bears the marks of the thorns that were thrust in his head. doesn't say that he bears the marks of the beatings and the bloodstains that were all over him. But he does bear the marks of his death, his atoning death. He bears them in his hands, in his side, and in his feet. Because they forever stand as a testimony to his atoning death. By contrast, we will not bear the marks of our death and any deformities that we may have received here on this earth. He also has a unique glory as the God-man. He's uniquely exalted as the Son and Redeemer. So his resurrection glory in that sense is a different glory than ours because it is his as the mediator and the sacrifice. It says that God highly exalted him above every name that is named both under the earth, in the earth, everywhere, and all of heaven because of his obedience to death on a cross His atoning death on the cross. That's Philippians 2. John caught a glimpse of that glory in Revelation chapter 1. Something that we'll look at later. Jesus said this. That when he was raised, he was raised. He said, with the glory that I had, speaking to the Father, the glory that I had with you before the world was. Before the world was. Now Jesus had, in one sense, a different glory than before he came. Because he has a new glory in heaven now, and that glory is glorious Savior and Redeemer, as the incarnate Son of God who accomplished salvation, the one who is the love and the delight of his people forever in heaven. 
But that glory that he has, though it has the added element of his work of redemption, it is a glory that is consistent with the eternal glory that he has shared with the Father forever, forever, from all eternity. It is a resurrection also in which is very much the same. But as much as I would like to keep going, we're going to have to pick up these things next week. As we'll look next week and begin by how then was the resurrection understood by the Old Testament saints. And we'll finish some of these things that we did this morning as we go through the text. And how our body is the same as his, what his was actually like, and in what ways it was different. But I would leave with you this. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to salvation. It's absolutely essential to salvation. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not clearly affirmed by you in your heart and confessed by your mouth, then in Paul's own words, you cannot be saved. It is essential to the gospel. It is essential to the gospel that we understand that Christ died and also that he rose again and that he is returning in power and glory. For those of us who do know him and have that confidence, consider and meditate on all these wonders that you have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us, who has reconciled us to the Father, who has brought us near to him through faith, has eternally guaranteed guaranteed the forgiveness of our sin and to be in his presence forever. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this testimony that you have given to us of the great work of redemption that you accomplished in your Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you in obedient love to the Father that you came and took on flesh, the flesh of humanity, forever. That you demonstrated your glory as you walked among men, but you demonstrated your glory and the glory of the Father most supremely through your death on the cross your sin-bearing death on the cross, and through your resurrection from the dead, and through your sending of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for these good gifts that you have purchased to us. Help us to meditate much and long and be transformed in likeness to you through holiness and obedient love, through these realities of your resurrection and the redemption that we have received who trusted in you. I pray that we would demonstrate that in our lives more and more. Dismiss us now with worship and dismiss us now to live for you in this world until we meet again next week. We pray this in the majestic name of Jesus Christ. Amen.